0: Hello and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London and I will be your host for this episode. Today I'll be going to Germany to meet with Stefan Druskat, all virtually of course, Stefan is a research software engineer at the Alexander Humboldt University in Berlin. He works in the exciting area of digital humanities and linguistics and is a very active member of the RSE Society and community in Germany. Hello and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be on the show.
0: Stefan, let's start with how did you become a research software engineer and what's your journey?
1: So I think my journey to becoming a research software engineer probably started at the tender age of, I think, seven or eight, when I went to the local library and got old chip magazines. I learned the scripts that were printed in them in BASIC by heart and went to the department store to type them into the C64s on the display there to show a randomized star field, which couldn't be, uh, basically an endless loop. But I... I kind of forgot about computers for a long time and I did my MA in English and German literature, modern German literature and linguistics. During my studies, I was attending a course on corpus linguistics where we talked about digitally accessing linguistic corpora, especially the BNC, the British National Corpus. And the software we were using and I was presenting to the class was very, very basic. So it was basically a keywords and context functionality. So but you could look for words and look to both sides um, of the context of the words and try and find something interesting linguistically. I realized then I was coming back to my very early interest in, in computers and how they worked. How, the, how the linguistic tools worked and was realizing that they were actually really limited. And I spoke to my professor about that and he was agreeing that the, there's a lot that could be done for linguistics in terms of computational tools. So, um, he actually drafted me then as a student assistant. Um, his name is Volker Gaspey. By the way, he's also my PI in one of my projects at the moment. And he's a professor for English linguistics at the University of Jena and Thuringia. This was a. Proper linguistic research project. They were doing research on reciprocal markers. It was a typological project from a range of languages and putting their findings into a database. And my job there was actually my first RSE job, although I obviously had no idea what an RSE was at that time, which was around 2009 or 10, I think. So they had this database and they asked me to construct a meta search interface so they could find out about the status of the database itself and its contents, what was in it, what was missing, etc. Who filled in what, and that's what I did in the course of about a year. I had absolutely no idea about programming at that time, and it was usual stacks: so HTML, CSS, MySQL, and PHP, and it was a PHP that um, was really interesting to learn. But I also wrote, wrote horrible code because in the as a student in the context of a year with no previous um, experience, you can probably imagine what came out of that long spaghetti code, probably very buggy. And sad to say, I just looked today and uh, the tool, although it has been online for a couple of years after the project ended, is no longer there and the database is no longer accessible. So I guess that speaks for uh, RSEs and the role they, they should play in, uh, in research these days. Make sure that tools can still work for a longer time past the end of a project. Basically, after that, after my MA, a couple of weeks later, the same professor asked me whether I wanted to be part of a another research project. This was another typological project. And I said, yes. And they wanted me to write an annotation tool for linguistic corpora. We drafted some requirements and I set out and did a Two week community college course on Java. <laughs> um, because one of the problems they had is that they couldn't display some of the UTF uh, symbols properly in their, in the software they had. I went and saw that Java could do that and I gave them a solution and they said, yes, okay, you can have the job. And then I set up to uh, learn basically Java and the Eclipse RCP framework for, for uh, writing desktop applications for the whole cause of the project. I didn't finish the software because I had no experience. I wasn't a trained programmer or computer scientist. Funnily enough, in 2018, I've started uh, another project with the same PI and a PI from Humboldt University in Berlin, Anke Lüdeling. She's also a professor in corpus linguistics. And we are now actually implementing the software we had in mind and for which the original project had yielded an architectural prototype. So what I did then was try and find a way to create an application and a linguistic annotation platform that would outlive the project. So, you know, make it um modular and try and document it well. I'm not saying that I completely succeeded, but we were able to pick up on the work that I've originally done in the first project, now in this project. And the project has the aim to show that with very little, or with as little as possible impact, using the tools that are available, it is possible to make a modular software for linguistic research that is sustainable enough to live on beyond the project and can be reused later on by other linguistic researchers.
0: Uh, That's a lot to unpick. And I'm particularly impressed about you starting programming and picking up code at the age of seven. One of the things that people might think about when they hear software engineering, they think about fields like physics and mathematics, but not particularly humanities or linguistics, perhaps. So have you actually ever encountered people who are surprised that you work in humanities as a software engineer?
1: I still wouldn't call myself a software engineer. (laughs) I'm definitely on the way there. But um, in terms of whether people have been surprised... Not really, because in the projects I've, for one thing, always flown under the radar, so to speak, as just a researcher on a project. And the people in the projects I worked on and in the linguistic community in general are used to develop software themselves or uh, have people develop software for them in their projects. Because obviously uh, linguistic, especially corpus linguistics work with lots of data and there is no way that can kind of, process that manually. So I think linguistics has always had a strong software component. Some people might have been surprised that my only job in a project would be to develop software and not do any actual linguistic research. But apart from that, I think it was pretty normal. But at that time, I didn't really think about that as well. I was just happy to be on, on a job in research, but it was really interesting, a very interesting context, and I could uh, program.
0: So you mentioned digital humanities. I mean, that sounds like a fascinating field, and linguistics apparently is obviously one of them. How would you describe digital humanities? What exactly is that, to give us an idea of the field?
1: So very, very generally and broadly, I would say that um, the digital humanities are setting out to answer the classic questions that people had um, about human artifacts. This could be you know, art or literature or history and try and tackle the questions they have with computational methods. The outcomes are really, really different. So in linguistics, there is a lot of data processing, what some people would say data science even. There is a lot of um, statistics and natural language processing involved, whereas in other fields, people work on digital editions, especially if you look at the classics or at old literature studies or history. And visualization plays an important role, especially for fields like Arts history where people have actually recreated kind of 3D digital objects from their objects of study. That's quite interesting. I've only ever really dipped my toes into the digital humanities field proper um, because linguistics was clearly my, my domain. I found it, I found it very interesting to see that the digital humanities are Really advanced in their methodologies, and also to see that there was a rift between some people saying that the problem of the digital humanities was that they focused on their methods alone and not really on the research questions, whereas others others were saying that this is the 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 way forward for in the future for the humanities in general to just work computationally and as yeah, the the digital humanities rather than um, the the old time humanities, so to speak.
0: What exactly is it that interests you in this area?
1: I've always had an interest in languages in general. I've found it really interesting to see how languages work, what they could do. Um, this could be English, could be the language of the elves in the Lord of the Rings, um, which is some, something I seem to have passed on to my to my kids as well. Um, my oldest son is mad about the elves in the language. I think probably the most intriguing thing is the fact that language really shapes reality, and it's ever evolving. So it's really hard for linguists to find uh, rules that govern language change and language use in all its aspects. Annotations and manual annotations especially are, I think, still the best way to create a specific, certain level of knowledge about the language that you're looking at. And the the annotations will let you generalize at least a bit where you can make statements about not only one person's uh, specific language use, but statements about languages in general.
0: Let's home in a little bit on linguistics. In one of your projects, the Melatamp, you're dealing with seven oceanic languages. And I find that quite fascinating. Could you give us an overview of what that project is? I mean, clearly languages interest you, but what was the challenge in this particular project or what do you do there?
1: So the project itself was looking at how tempers, aspect modality and polarity work in... Oceanic languages of Melanesia. The problem is with these languages that you have very little information about them. There may be grammars of these languages that, that have been written by missionaries going there in the 19th century, and some of them are really interested in the languages. And obviously, you know that 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 whole aspect of of language research is a bit pr- problematic in itself because it's also driven great cultural change and not not always for the best. And so the project was looking at the TAM systems in these languages. And the data we have used is, was mostly based on field work. So people went to Vanuatu and other regions in Melanesia. And went into the communities and conducted interviews and collected data there. My colleagues actually went there twice during the course of the project to, to collect more data on the, on the aspects that we're looking at of these languages. And my task was basically to make sure that they had had the best tools available to concatenate the data, to bring all the data they had together. So this was data from older projects. In specific formats, and I don't really want to go into detail because these formats weren't really formats, but they were just text files. And the newer language, the, the newer data that they collected from a more modern tool, which actually had a data format that you could work with and rely on, basically. And when I was interviewing for this project, um, the PI said, "Well, I was asked to put a person on the project that could program um, because." they thought that it would help the project i'm not quite sure because you know i i i can do some perl myself i know regex those were the tools that they started out uh, thinking about using for their project and i said well in the same university we had developed this analysis platform for linguistic data so i suggested that they use this tool and i showed it to them and they said this looks great you know but how can we get our old um, field data into that so my main task was to make sure that they could use all the data they wanted on the platform they wanted to use. And this included lots of uh, conversion, writing conversion tools for the different formats and making sure that they could actually annotate with the tag sets they wanted to use on the formats. That, that was a very interesting project. It took me a long time to understand what they were looking for and make sure that they could use the data, especially working with these some of these horrible text-based data formats. But it worked in the end, and I think the, the project was a success. It was really interesting to work with them as well. I learned a lot about the culture, and especially preparing the field, helping prepare the field work was another aspect that was interesting because I learned a lot, a lot about how linguists can work in the field and how they can make sure that the data they get doesn't show their own influence on the interviews if you know what I mean.
0: Was it in the nature of preserving or just understanding them better and kind of categorizing them? So what was the main drift of the project?
1: So I think the the project itself sat on the interface of language documentation and language preservation. So we made sure that we deposited all all the data we had gathered in repositories for language data so they can be preserved. Some of these communities in and Melanesia are really, really small and will probably be extinct in say something like fifty years. And the, the other aspect was clearly to to find out more in a typological sense um how these TAMP systems, so tempest aspect modality and, and and polarity, work across different languages. You can try and compare them with other languages and find find out something about the nature of the language itself and also the nature of the con- cognition systems of people trying to understand how they how they see the world and how they package that into language. Some of these languages have have very interesting constructions that you would never find or even think about in, uh, say, uh, Germanic languages, for example, um, such as the notion of something being real or irreal. That's not that, that's something that we can say, let's say in German or in English, they use in language, but they have specific markers for that, and that was really interesting to see.
0: Did you actually ever go there yourself on a field study?
1: Oh, I wish I, I wish I could have. Um, I bet we had we had quite quite a handsome travel budget, but it was all used up, and for good reason um, for the linguistic researchers to go there and conduct the field work. Um, I was lucky enough that I could go to Hawaii um, for a conference for a talk I've, I've given at a conference on language documentation tools and software. So. That was quite nice, but I didn't, I didn't. I never managed to go to Vanuatu. Perhaps someday.
0: I hope so. Maybe we can move on to one of the other areas that you mentioned already, uh, which is annotations and citations. Let's start with annotations. I come from a publishing background, and annotations for me mean something very specific, like highlighting text and putting notes into a PDF, etc. But I think Annotations in your context mean something quite different. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: So, I've actually stumbled about this the difference between the meaning of annotations when I was working for a publisher myself. And I, having, having had this linguistic experience, um, I've always thought about annotations uh, in the linguistic sense. And I was quite amazed to see that this was not what other people thought annotations would be. I think the concept is pretty similar. You, you highlight a piece of language. And you write a note. I mean, that's basically what annotation means. In linguistics, though, it's it has a much more complex meaning, or it's used in a more complex sense, because linguistic annotations also happen on kind of data streams. So this could be language, text, or, or recordings. But they um, use specific tag sets. So you mark fractions of of language to be in a certain category, for example. These annotations not only work on the level of, say, parts of speech, which is something that people may be accustomed to. You have these huge web corpora, for example, which are automatically annotated with parts of speech. There are some parsers out there which are pretty good, especially for English, not so much for smaller languages. But you can also build very, very complex structures, and you have layers of annotations for different analyses. So if you wanted to analyze... The syntactic structure of a specific text, you would annotate the text in something that will look like a tree in the end. Or if you wanted to find the re- rhetorical structure of a text, that would be different annotations or information structure of a text. The way that we work in corpus linguistics is that we build these very complex, uh, multi-layered annotation systems on a specific data source. And that really is something different because it's not just highlight a section of the text and give it you know, write right a we note to it, but it's actual data structures that are built on top of the, the the language data you have.
0: And I guess that this kind of annotation was also part of the work uh, regarding the seven oceanic languages that you did previously.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, the annotations um, that the researchers used were were mostly um, on the morphological level. So the sections of a word say that have specific meaning and using the annotations they could then find structures in the language data which would allow them to make deductions f- about the language they were looking at because they were using a specific tag set for all the corpora from all the languages these annotations could then be used to, to actually compare the languages based on the data that's mm-hmm. that's the basic principle of language comparison they use the same annotations for different languages of course the tag set must be powerful enough to be able to do that mm-hmm. And then being able to compare, compare between the languages and the structures these languages use.
0: I find that a hugely fascinating field. And uh, I, I'd love to talk about it a little bit longer. and Maybe you need to have a separate podcast about this, actually. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it, because it's such a huge field, yeah, and there's so so much to explore. But what I would like to do next is to move on to the subject of citations, and in particular, citing software. Maybe we can start by you explaining what you did in citations and the contributions you made to the field.
1: So I actually stumbled across the uh, the topic of software citation by chance. I was at a workshop called WISPI, uh, which is the workshop for sustainable scientific software colon practice and experiences. And this was before the RSE conference um, in 2017. And we had discussion groups and I was looking at some, some blog posts on the blog of the Software Sustainability Institute. And I found this very interesting blog post by Robin Wilson saying that, you know, if you want to cite software, and I could clearly see that this is a problem because not a lot of people are properly citing software. If you want to cite software or rather if you want to make your software citable, why don't you just put a file, a text file, like a readme into the repository of your software that gives people a bit text snippet and some text explaining why they should use this bit text snippet to to cite the software they're using. And the concept of why they should do this was pretty clear to me. And But I thought there could be something better than um, having some free text and a bit text in bit, because it's really hard for a machine to uh, understand what it's looking at. Uh, the, the suggestion by Robin Wilson was to name that file citation. I thought, well, maybe we can take this one stage further and create a format which could prepare the citation data for a software so that a machine could understand it better, which is a structured format. And uh, this is something that we discussed during the workshop, and and we've decided that it would be worthwhile trying to create such a format. And uh, after the workshop, I basically sat down and wrote up the specs for that format. It's a format called the citation file format, pretty obviously. This is based on YAML, so it's machine-readable, and it's still halfway human readable as well. So if you look at the file as a human, you you would still be able to understand what's in the file and why why it's there. And we've discussed this further and the file format is actually now in use in some projects and there's some tooling built on top of it so that it's easy to create these files and put them where they belong and also to make sure that they can be published to um, repositories such as Zenodo. Shortly after that... Dan Katz and Neil Hong asked me whether it would be interesting for me to join a group called the Force 11 Software Citation Implementation Working Group. So it was basically Force 11 is a community, as I understand it, of um, volunteers working on scholarly communications and the issues that we face in scholarly communications. One of which obviously is that researchers don't know how to cite software. So the idea is that, you know, software is a valid research output in its own right, because nowadays almost all research is in some way based on software. So the software should um, be accepted as a research output and the people that write the software and maintain the software should receive the credit for the work they've done in enabling research or kind of creating the software as a research output. There was a predecessor to this working group, and that was obviously called the Force 11 Software Citation Working Group. And they've written a very, very interesting and very good paper. It's called the Software Citation Principles, and it outlines the principles of well, kind of obvious software citation. For example, that you should accept that software is a valid research product and it should be cited as such. So basically on par with. Papers, for example. So, the uh, Software Citation Implementation Working Group works on building solutions for software citation based on these principles. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to do a lot of work over the past few months due to COVID and other reasons, but it is challenging to find solutions that will work. And um, that's because there are certain factors that influence whether a solution is being tapen- taken up by the community. And you can see, like, clearly see why. Sometimes it's just that you don't like how something looks or that it's just not the way you're used to doing things. But I think it's crucial that we find solutions that will work for everyone that are being taken up by the community to get to the stage where software is actually being properly cited in the literature.
0: I strongly agree with that, Stefan, because I think it's such an important thing to actually make software citable as well as being recognized for the contributions it makes to a particular research project. As you said, the majority of research that happens nowadays is based on some kind of software output. How can we make research software citable? What kind of steps can a researcher take to make that happen?
1: So I think the most important thing is to think about this from the day they start their work on a new, on a new software project. One of the major problems in software citation is that it's easy to find the respective metadata for a paper, for example, because everything is there on the first page of the paper. You have a list of authors, and you have a title, you have a date of publication, and usually you also have a DOI, an ID which will help people go to the exact version of the paper that they want to look at. This is not so for software, especially the question of the who, who is the author of the software must be determined, cannot be determined by an editor or by the reader, but must be determined by the people who work on the project. And there are lots of people who are not even working on the code for their software themselves. They might be testers, they might be designers, they might be PIs who are setting out the general plan for the uh, software project. And these people may have to be in the author list as well. So one very important step is, as a research software project, you should make clear to your users and to the people who will cite you what metadata they should cite the software with. So that's that's the very first basic step. The other important step is obviously publish your software. Make sure that you give version numbers to the versions you want to publish and make it an active process of taking a specific version you want to publish and put them somewhere where this version will not change and can be given persistent identifier. For example, you could upload the version you want to uh, publish onto Zenodo, and there it's given a DOI. And if you have another version, then this could go on the same data set on Zenodo. We'll get a new DOI, but it will also be subsumed under a parent DOI, which is really important because this way people that want to write maybe compares different softwares within a specific field can refer to the software project. And people that use a specific version of the software for their research can cite the specific version they have used using that DOI, for example. There are still some hiccups in the process and that has to do with the publication process itself and how you can reference software that hasn't been published, etc. But I think providing the citation metadata is really important, and actively publishing your software is also very important.
0: I think it's an important start. And I think since both of us have worked for publishers before, Stefan, I think you touched on a very important point. When you publish a paper, there is a very specific process. Each journal has its own process where you submit the text, and then you have to review uh, of peers in the field And then it gets published in a journal, but it doesn't seem to include research software or the actual data that are associated with it. There is some kind of beginning, but I can see there is some friction between, say, uh, publishing a paper and then you still have to do some extra steps to store the software and the versioning somewhere else and kind of tie that link so that that software belongs to that piece of paper. Am I getting this wrong?
1: No, the, the friction is definitely there. And um fortunately, there have been some very interesting projects um, in terms of research software and publications in the last couple of years. One of them is the Journal of Open Source Software, which is a journal that publishes meta papers. But this is basically just a one-page description of the software, but also the review process within jos the The Journal of open source software focuses the software not so much the the description of the software because that's what's important and I think this is a very critical step um towards establishing a trust level for software as well so I think if we want software to be treated on the same level that papers are, then we have to make sure that we can trust the we can trust the software as much as we trust papers because they've gone through a peer review process and this mm-hmm. is not only for the engineering side, so people should actually look at the software and see whether it's stable and it's good for use, but also we should try and establish a review process for the scientific parts of the software. So people should be able to look at software and we should have a review process for software looking at whether the algorithms that have been implemented actually do what they're supposed to do. And you can clearly see that in what's been happening with some of the simulation projects related to covid-19 and there has been uh, some discussion going on about why whether whether the the actual code can could be trusted and a review process has been put in place the review process has helped massively in establishing more trust in the models they're using for simulation of the pandemic these are definitely things that that need to happen they're very expensive they're very very resource intensive But if we want to conduct research, digital research, there's no way around it, I think.
0: I totally agree. And I think we touched on that actually in previous episodes um, where we talk about uh, sustainability and reproducibility, more like it, um, of software in research domain and how we can verify that the results are actually what the paper says they should be. As somebody else remarked, uh, there's already quite a review burden on papers when you want to publish Scientific results, there's a very thorough review process. So people might argue that, okay, we're adding to that, we're adding to the burden. Does it actually create a lot more value?
1: I think we have two points that we could discuss here is, one is the, the way that um, peer review is currently conducted. And this is totally voluntary. Uh, so this is definitely one thing that we should start talking about um, how the review process should work. And also, one aspect is uh, education. Uh, especially for software reviews, at least for Germany and the fields I work in, I have the impression that we couldn't just set up a review process like this because we lack the people that actually have enough experience in research software development. And so this is something that should and can be tackled uh, easily. We should change curricula to include uh, some research software engineering or development Mm -hmm. so that... The researchers of the future will be able to professionally work with the software, develop software, and also be able to judge whether something works as expected and be able to review.
0: Do you think that software that should go public and is needs to provide these kind of things so that we can have some kind of sanity checks that we can execute and say, okay, we may not agree on the results it produces, but at least it checks these and these boxes? Do you think that would be a valuable approach?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think if, if you read, um, any of the research software engineering guidelines that are out there at the moment, um, all of them will surely mention testing. And testing is very, one of the very basic steps you can uh, take towards having more sustainable, more reliable, more trustable software. The problem is that if you're in, in reality, if you're a researcher developing software for your project, you probably won't be given enough time to implement tests as well. But this is something that we really need to stress is that Unless we take these sometimes very simple, sometimes more complex steps towards ensuring that we can trust the software we develop. There is no way that research can actually happen. We can rely on it or even reproduce it. I mean, that, that would be uh, great, but a long way from, from that point. Not only do we need to educate people on how to write tests and judge software, but also we need to provide more resources for people that develop the software, the RSEs, so they can take enough time to write tests, to write documentation, to publish properly, to kind of make sure that all the metadata is there and that everyone can contribute to build a community around the software. And unless research in general, even society in general, is willing to give us these resources, it'll be a hard task to, to get to a more reliable and more trustworthy software.
0: Well, absolutely, Stefan. And I think it's a nice lead up to my next question, which is, of course, the research software engineering community in Germany, of which I believe you're a very active member. So could you give us a little bit of an overview of what you're doing there?
1: I'm as active as possible at the moment. Um, so the German research community basically formed right after the first RSE conference 2016 in Manchester. I was put in touch with five people from Germany who went to the first RSE conference but we got in touch with each other right after the the, the the conference, and we decided that we needed something exactly like the UK RSE community in Germany. We basically retraced, tried to retrace some of the steps that the UK RSE community has taken towards establishing a Society for Research Software Engineering. It's taken us at some time, but we um, ended up setting up the German Association for Research Software Engineering, which is called DERSE. We set that up. At the end of 2018, we also uh, organized our first conference with huge and very active and very enthusiastic um, group of of volunteers. And we ran DERC19, the first um, German conference of research software engineers in June 2019. And that was a huge success and I think a good starting point uh, for the German RSE community. Since then, we've been involved with some consortial initiatives around funding in Germany. We have now something like 50 members in the community, I think, and we're still looking at growing. We're part of something that's been publicized only yesterday, which is Source, S-O-R-S-E, which is the series of online resource software events that takes place now because we had to cancel not only the German RSE conference this year, but also the UK RSC conference this year, et cetera. But one thing that's, that we've done with, with DRSC in this year is we publicized our first, or we published our first position paper on research software sustainability. Because once we had the association in place, we were thinking what the best way was to represent our community. And we put in place a community process to develop positions that the community things we should take in terms of research software and the research software um, engineering situation in Germany. Some projects from a DFG call Research Software Sustainability came together, started at a workshop at the DERC-19 conference, and we went through a long phase of writing and reviewing and community review as well. And we've published a paper on research software sustainability in Germany and beyond, in May 2020, that was quite a feat. I think it was great to see the community coming together and collaborating on this on this document that we hope will be read, especially by funders and um, policymakers in Germany, to drive uh, research software engineering.
0: Yeah, I think it's great to see that a research software engineering community is growing. And I heard from Simon Hetrick, who is one of the directors of the Software Sustainability Institute, that Belgium actually came on board, um, I think, in the last couple of weeks. So I think it's growing. And I think people recognize there's a growing need for having people with software expertise in research. Going back to um, the research society and uh, research software engineering society in Germany, what do you think? are the next big challenges for you guys?
1: So I think in Germany, um, the situation is a bit special because what happened in the UK, I think, was that the community has grown over about a decade before the association was, was founded. In Germany, we went the other way around. So we founded the association and ran the first conference before having a good idea of who the community was. And I think that in general, it's still the, one of the main issues is still creating awareness of the importance of software and research in general. In the next step, also the people that develop and maintain the software. But I think we've made some progress, um, especially because we see that structures around the research software development community are being built in some research institutions. There's increased awareness um, on the funding side of things, uh, but still we... Would love to grow the community a lot more and maintain the impact we've had and grow that as well, and hope to influence, especially, uh, research policy in Germany and the university specifically.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to continue talking to you, Stefan, but I'm afraid we have to come to an end now. So let me finish with two questions that I'd like to ask at the end of each podcast. And the first one is, If you imagine a point in the future, sort of 20, 30 years ahead, and you look back to your career, what would a successful career as a research software engineer look like to you?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. So I, I think looking back, I would be very happy to be able to say that I have helped create and maintain software that has been used for research and has yielded results beyond the original scope of the project that has been created. this is, I think this is a very important point that making software more sustainable is actually better for research. So this is one thing I would really like to be able to say at an old age that I've helped um, doing that. And the other thing is that I hope to be able to say that um, some of the work I've done has helped software achieve the status of a fully accepted, valid research output.
0: Okay, very nice. Thank you, Stefan. And finally... We talked so much about work and research and software, but what do you like to do when you 're not programming, helping research or leading things
1: yes, um so this would clearly be music i've I've played in bands for what, over twenty five years now, and this is actually the thing I miss most in the, in, the, in the current in the current pandemic that i'm not able to tour for example as much as I was earlier on this is you know this is partly obviously due to work and kids as well, but um music has been the second, at least the second most important factor in my life. And I definitely want to keep playing in bands and go go on tour if time and the, the health situation permits. Uh, I like reading as well. I like hard science fiction, especially the work of uh, British authors such as Alistair Reynolds and the late great Ian M. Banks. Yes. And I think that's probably will, will ever be all I have time for with having, you know, having three kids and, and working in research and really enjoying that as well and putting in putting an effort there. But take away the music from me and I'm only half
0: human. (laughs) What instruments do you play?
1: I usually play the electric guitar. Um, I've had nine years of training on the piano, which Mm. uh, was good, but I was glad that I could stop doing that and start playing in bands. I've played uh, bass and sang in bands as well. I've played in a band uh, once where I did drums, uh, but I don't think that would have been a very nice experience for anyone. It was good fun though. It was a good workout. I bet. (laughs) could probably use that today. Um, would help me lose some of the corona uh, belly of, of Creed
0: here. <laughs> well, thank you so much Stefan. it was such a great pleasure talking to you and it was very exciting and um, I wish you all the best for your future projects.
1: Thanks very much indeed. I I was very excited to be on the project and uh, good luck with the with the rest of the podcast.
0: Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.